Turns out, when it comes to scholars who work on the plays of Shakespeare's era, not only don't they know, they sometimes don't know they don't know. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. We have texts of only one-sixth of the plays written during the great age of Elizabethan theater. One-sixth. For the other 3,000 or so plays that were performed in those years, there's almost nothing. Sometimes just a little evidence. Descriptions of performances, lists of titles, receipts, diaries, letters, or fragments of parts. That raises the question, how do you make sense of a Swiss cheese history when you have more holes than cheese? One tool to try and fill in some of those holes is the Lost Plays database, an open access forum for information about lost plays from England that were originally written and performed between 1570 and 1642. The database started in Australia and in 2018 found a new home here at the Folger. Pulling all of this information together into one place has offered up some remarkable discoveries. And some of them are beginning to upend long-established scholarly ideas about Shakespeare, his theater, and his times. One of the founders of the Lost Plays database is David McInnes, an associate professor at the University of Melbourne in Australia. David has now placed some of his best discoveries and the new theories they spawned in a book. It's called Shakespeare and Lost Plays. David woke up very early in the morning to join us from his home in Melbourne for this podcast that we're calling Praising What is Lost. David McInnes is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. You know, simple question to start. If plays are lost, how do you know about them? I mean, I imagine you like an Indiana Jones of lost plays searching high and low for clues for lost treasure. You know, that's what I kind of hoped would happen originally when I got into this line of work. I'd be delving through dusty archives and looking for fragments and manuscripts and things like that. Typically what I'm doing is looking for diary entries and licensing records and legal objections and any context from the early modern period in which someone may have named or referred to a lost play and, and looking for ways that we can extrapolate from those tiny fragments or play titles and get a greater understanding of what that lost play may have once been about. Huh, so give us a sense of something that you found, a hint. And you have this wonderful anecdote um, about a lost play that's only identified as Henry the Anna. <laughs> Henry the U-N-A, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. So, so this was one of the earlier discoveries that my colleague Matt Stegel at Bristol made. Henry the Una is a fragmentary title. The, the, the end of that final word has been burned off in a manuscript in a fire. And so no one knew what this play was about. And everyone assumed it was something to do with Henry I of some country. Using new technology available to us these days, like early English books online, which digitizes and makes fully searchable thousands and thousands of books from Shakespeare's lifetime, you can search for a phrase like Henry the Una and see what it turns up. And it only turns up three hits with that exact phrase in it, and they all refer to Henry the Unable, an impotent Castilian king. So that play had nothing to do with the typical Shakespearean history and was actually a very weird um, <laughs> sexual politics play, basically. Oh, well, at least the Una kind of set you in that Spain direction. 
yeah, <laughs> it turns out right. to be right. But it is that is funny. I mean, plays about impotent kings are quite apparently quite a thing. That's not. You can understand why it was a short-lived moniker, though. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I'm I am thinking of the Henry the Sixth plays and and King John, and I guess mm-hmm. you could even say Richard the Second is. So there are a lot of existing plays like this. So you you've made a discovery of a lost play, but it wasn't it wasn't a genre. <laughs> you haven't discovered a whole lost genre. Not on this occasion. Uh, I think that is starting to happen a little bit, though. One of the things I did find in my book was that a number of lost play titles seem to point to a very unlikely subgenre of a, a, a biopic. Essentially, I mean, there was a play about Pythagoras. Uh, that's a very strange topic for a play. Uh, And there's another one about Sir John Mandeville, the famed English traveller who didn't really travel beyond his library. Uh, So there are interesting subgenres here that aren't really accounted for in the surviving drama of the period. Oh, now that's interesting because my first question was originally going to be, why do we care about lost plays? We care about lost plays because Shakespeare was first and foremost a playwright who was invested in making money. And London was a very rich theatrical landscape during his lifetime, a number of companies and a number of theatres all competing for the same playgoers' attention and money. So we need to understand what Shakespeare was responding to and influencing in terms of the other plays around at the time. And of course, frustratingly, the vast majority of those plays are lost. So it's giving a context for the history that we we do know. It, it seems as if you could potentially get a completely different understanding of a country or a time period just by looking at the entertainment that people are consuming. So this kind of work can turn things on its head? I would argue, and of course I'm biased, but the drama is the most important context for arguing Shakespeare's work because it's very immediate to him, it's it's his livelihood. So getting a a fuller, richer understanding of what the theatre of his day looked like, I think, is really important for appreciating Shakespeare's work in context. Uh, And and just to give the listeners some idea, from that period, only 543 plays survive, uh, but probably up to about 3,000 were written. So everything we say about the plays from Shakespeare's time could be a massive distortion based on that minority of surviving examples. Wow, what we don't know, what we don't know. I mean, one thing you're looking at is travel literature, right? Yeah, I did my PhD on travel literature. I'm really quite fascinated by uh, what people in England during the 16th and 17th century thought about the world. You know, I love travel. Uh, I wish I could travel right now, but of course the pandemic prevents it. But Shakespeare's audiences also were similarly limited in their travel opportunities And the work I've done on Lost Plays shows that in this instance, most of the lost travel plays are distinctly different from those that survive. They seem to be steeped in recent history. So a play called The Conquest of the West Indies, The Plantation at Virginia, The New World's Tragedy, these are all plays that are more topically related to historical events in the New World, whereas the surviving travel plays are much more usually uh, romances like The Tempest or satires like Ben Jonson's Eastwood Ho. So how does that change how you think about The Tempest? Because when we're talking about these, using these lost plays that you're uncovering to understand this time period or, or country, when you're talking about Shakespeare's era, we do know some of the historical ramifications of the plays that do exist. So with The Tempest in particular, that's a really fascinating example because scholars since the last decade of the 19th century have been interested in this possibility that The Tempest is about the new world of the Americas. 
Uh, and there's no real explicit clues in the play. There are passing references. So scholars have really had to try and work hard to establish why the play resonates with real life travel and the Americas, the new world. I would argue that by recovering the lost plays and realising there are precedents for plays set in the Americas, you strengthen your claim for an early modern audience seeing The Tempest in the same way that more recent scholars have seen it. Well, throughout your book, you do keep bringing up this theory about how lost plays are the negative space of our understanding of this period, which is a lovely visual image. And I'd like to know more about what you mean by that. Yeah, so it's an art history term, and it refers to the interplay of the the primary object in a two-dimensional illustration and usually the background. Uh, So one example I like to give is the FedEx logo, which you notice slowly has a a forward-facing arrow embedded in the space between the letters, and you can't really see one without seeing the other. And so my argument by metaphor is that we've been seeing Shakespeare's drama and the surviving plays, and we think that's the extent of the picture. And what we haven't really allowed for is the extent to which the lost plays have actually shaped our vision of the existing drama. It's really wild. It's as if we, from history, only have cable television and not network, or only (laughs) network and not cable. (laughs) It makes a big difference to our understanding. It does. (laughs) Well, you have an example uh, of all of this as it relates to Hamlet and to uh, two plays. And one of them maybe is called uh, Phil Milanko, and another one is called The Tanner of Denmark. Yeah. So when it comes to The Tanner of Denmark, what light does that shed on Hamlet, or what, what context does it provide for it that we, we just didn't know about until you found it was found? So we tend to t- think of Hamlet as being a little bit unusual. We celebrate it as one of Shakespeare's greatest masterpieces, being very proto-modern. We associate it with his company's move to the Globe Theatre, which is a period, obviously, of positivity and excitement and is very forward-looking, anticipating the modern. Uh, I'm arguing that Shakespeare's Denmark actually has important connotations for an early modern playgoer. It's Shakespeare's only Danish play, so for us it's an anomaly, but not for his original audiences. And throughout the 1590s, there were a whole series of plays, most of them lost, that had either prominent Danish characters or Danish settings. And what I've found is I haven't solved what the Tanner of Denmark was about. It's one of those names that you can search in Google and Ebo, which is early English books online, and any other large corpus database, and it doesn't return any meaningful hits. So it's a storyline that's potentially lost to us forever, but it has some options. And the more you look into Denmark in this period, the more you recognise that historically, of course, the Danes ruled England for a while, uh, and so the two countries' fates were intertwined, and there's a sense in which Denmark becomes almost an uncanny other for England, for exploring England's political fate and its future in particular. Well, the Queen was from Denmark, right? Anna of Denmark was, that's right. So James's wife was, was Danish. Uh, obviously, during the 1590s, England was aware that the Scottish king was marrying a Danish bride. And towards the end of the 1590s, when Elizabeth is essentially on her deathbed, there would be a growing awareness that James might be coming down to London and become the next king of England with a, a Danish queen. Um, but until that point, Denmark has a consistent role on the English stage as being this other a parallel universe in some ways. So Shakespeare's not the first to realise that's a really helpful context for exploring English politics. And it's no coincidence then that this play, Hamlet, is a thinly veiled mirror for Elizabethan England 
But what is surprising to me, at least, is this long stage tradition of doing that. So I see. That gives you a sense of what Denmark just means to, to the average playgoer who lands in That's that That's right. Seat. So it wasn't just a foreign, exotic, uh, random setting. It was rich in political contexts and connotations for the English. And with Felimanco, you have a, a theory that relates to Philip, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Melanchthon. Uh, yeah. And he was a contemporary of Martin Luther, and he had some kind of theological kinship with Queen Elizabeth. So that's as much as I know. <laughs> who, who, is, who is Philip Melanchthon, or whatever his name is, and what's he got to do with Hamlet? So one of the primary sources for learning about lost plays is the diary or account book of the Rose Playhouse manager, Philip Henslow. Uh, if you ever saw that film, Shakespeare in Love, the Stoppard film, um, that's the character played by Geoffrey Rush in that film. Wonderfully And played. Henslow keeps this meticulous diary of all the plays that are being performed by the various companies at the Rose Playhouse. One of the most ambiguous play titles that he enters in his diary is something that we call Fell Melancho, or one word. Doesn't mean anything, and scholars have always struggled to understand what this play could be about. Uh, and I don't claim I've solved it, but part of what I wanted to do in this book was to explore methods for dealing both with loss and with ambiguity. And so I run a number of scenarios. I do some searches of key terms that could fit. Uh, and what I've come up with was that perhaps fell melancho was actually a, a mangling of two words, fell melancho, where fell is possibly fill and melancho is an abbreviation of melanchthon, so Philip melanchthon. And it seems to fit reasonably well. It's still just an educated guess. I would need a smoking gun before it's all confirmed. But what I like about this theory is that it makes sense of that mangled title. The subject matter was readily known to the English at this point in time. In fact, the play we know was co-authored by Henry Chettle, an established playwright, and a mysterious Mr. Robinson who we never hear of again. But there was a Robinson who translated Philip Melanchthon's theological writings into English. He was particularly well-versed in Melanchthon's writings. So it would make sense for an established playwright to team up with an expert on the subject matter and for them to work together to develop one of these biopics, essentially. In this case, about one of the great reformers, one of the great theologians of 16th century Germany from Wittenberg. So suddenly we have potential for a Wittenberg scholar on stage at the same time that Marlowe's Dr. Faustus about a Wittenberg scholar is being reprised by the Admiral's men, and Shakespeare weirdly keeps on insisting two or three times in an opening scene that, that Hamlet specifically went to the university in Wittenberg. And it seemed to be a topical reference that everyone at the time would understand and would make sense and there'd be a reason for name-dropping Wittenberg in this way. Uh, and my suggestion is that maybe Hamlet is part of this broader relationship to other theological concerns that are being dramatized at that point in time. So wow, this is really sleuthing, even down to the level of um, syllables. Uh, and this comes up also in another lost play that you explore. It's kind of a slightly different um, example. And it's by Michael Drayton about Owen Tudor. And you suggest in your book that it gives a different perspective on what audiences liked about Shakespeare's Henry V. And it sounds like the war play wasn't a war play for audiences back then. <laughs> Somehow, <laughs> explain, please. Well, I, I think probably screenwriters or, or scriptwriters are familiar with the concept where they've written something they think is really wonderful and tragic, and then the audience laughs in the wrong places. Uh, there's always that potential for an audience to take away something that maybe wasn't the primary intention. So I, I would still say that Henry V, of course, is a war play. 
Uh, but of course, at the centre of Shakespeare's Henry V play is the, the future Queen Catherine. And in the final scene of the play, we see Henry wooing Catherine and talking about marriage. And so that seems to have struck a chord with at least some playgoers in 1599-1600. And when Shakespeare's play is being performed at the Globe Theatre, just across the road at the Rose Playhouse, another company, the Admiral's Men, are performing. And you can see a number of points of correspondence between those two companies' repertorial offerings. And my suggestion is that when the Admiral's Men saw how successful Henry V was, they had to make a decision about how they're going to respond to that particular play. And in this instance, the Admiral's men who had Drayton amongst their playwrights produce a play called Owen Tudor. And Owen is Catherine's second husband. Drayton had written about them previously in terms of the romance, the love story. So it seems to me that Drayton's play would have been a romance featuring Catherine again, but this time with her second husband, Owen, which is an interesting sort of a spin-off or a take on Henry V. So it's a spin-off. It's like Law and Order Special Victims Unit. It's right, exactly. <laughs> or or Frasier having his own show after Cheers. Was it a hit? Do you know? Well, it seems to have done okay. Obviously, we don't have... It did get lost, but there are a number of reasons why plays get lost. And one of the fascinating things I learned in the course of writing this book was the extent to which lost plays consistently performed as well as or better than surviving plays at the box office. So one of the great things that Henslow gives us is a string of years for which we have relatively complete data about how much money is associated with the profits, basically. We don't know exactly whether he's recording his own takings, like his share, or whether he's recording a list of how much money he owes the company who performed the plays, but it's consistent regardless. And we see by crunching the numbers that lost plays are often the most profitable. It doesn't matter which company I look at because Henslow is a manager at the Rose Playhouse. He doesn't have necessarily a tie to one specific company. It's just whichever company is performing at the Rose at the time. So he lists four or five companies at least throughout the 1590s. It doesn't matter which company's uh, money figures I look at. Uh, it all comes out the same. The lost plays are always either at the top of the pile or very close to it. Well, that's wild. So they don't get lost because of quality. Well, that's it. That that was my uh, next question. You know, why do plays go lost anyway? And and there are tons of examples of this and reasons that you give. Um, but it doesn't seem as if it's about quality. No, and that's been the common supposition. So the other challenge I've faced in writing this book and working about working on lost plays is that scholarship has made certain decisions or assumptions about why plays become lost and what their value was. And so I've had to slowly dismantle some of those assumptions and offer counter-narratives, offer evidence for why we should take lost plays seriously and think about what their value really was. Uh, one theory is that plays that were collaboratively authored, which is too difficult to secure all the rights to in order to publish as easily as plays that are sole authored. Uh, we think about the Shakespeare First Folio, for example, which mostly consists of sole authored plays, although recent work has been gradually exposing the extent to which even those plays were actually co-authored in some way. But Shakespeare's Love's Labours One was a play that we know he wrote in the 1590s and seems to have written by himself, and yet that was lost altogether. And he, as a playwright, was still with the same company, so it's not as if he kept chopping and changing his allegiance and, and lost the play somehow because he left it behind with an old company. Um, we know that that play had been singled out for its quality as well. 
Uh, the earliest record we have of this is the Elizabethan schoolmaster, Francis Mears, who praises Shakespeare as one of the best for the English comedies and, and specifically lists Love's Labour's one. And we also know, or we think, that this play was printed because a bookseller's list from around 1603 turns up and it includes Shakespeare's Love's Labour's one. So that implies the play was once in print, in circulation, and maybe it was simply read to pieces it was so popular and nothing has survived. That is so wild. Okay, I, I want to ask you more about this because there are other Shakespeare plays that might have gotten lost, but we need to take a short break. We're talking with David McInnes, professor of English at the University of Melbourne in Australia. He's co-founder of the Lost Plays Database. I'm Barbara Bogave. This is Shakespeare Unlimited from the Folger Shakespeare Library, and we'll be right back. The Public Theater returns to immersive audio drama with a groundbreaking new take on Shakespeare's classic tragedy, Romeo y Julieta, directed by Sahim Ali. Romeo y Julieta is a bilingual Spanish and English production with Lupita Nyong'o in the role of Julieta opposite Juan Castaño Romeo. What light through yonder window breaks is el oriente y Julieta el sol. Romeo y Julieta from The Public Theater is available wherever you get podcasts. We're back with David McInnes, co-founder of the Lost Plays Database. And before the break, you talked about a Shakespeare play called Love's Labor's One that has disappeared. And there are other Shakespeare plays that might have joined the ranks of the Lost Plays, too, right? When they were putting together the first folio, aren't there works that hadn't been published? Well, yes. Yeah, so there are at least two plays Shakespeare wrote that have definitely been lost, Love's Labour's One and another play he wrote with John Fletcher called Cardenio. But when the Shakespeare first folio was put together posthumously, it's not a perfect document. The plays included are of uneven quality. Some of them are very rough, worked-over manuscripts, and some of them were much more polished final products. They took whatever they could get and they printed it. And in the course of doing so, they managed to publish for the first time about 18 of Shakespeare's plays, that hadn't appeared in print during Shakespeare's lifetime. Plays like Antony and Cleopatra and Macbeth and Twelfth Night. And there are all sorts of crazy reasons why plays go lost. One I love that you give is this old old story. I don't know if it's even true about a, uh, uh, someone named Warburton who blamed his cook for his plays, his scripts disappearing. <laughs> That's right. This is this tragic moment where we think we're tantalizingly close to having dozens and dozens of first-rate play manuscripts owned by this collector in the late 17th century. Uh, he has a list of all these plays by name, uh, and it seems to have been, this piece of paper that has the list seems to have been a wrapper, or like a binder that went around his big collection of plays. And then there's this very sad note at the end of it that says, unluckily, they were put under pie bottoms and burned. And he blames his cook, who obviously not being able to read, allegedly used these sheets of paper to line the baking trays with and incinerated them. Whether that's true or not is still being debated. There is good reason to think he owned at least some of them, though. Well, poor old Betsy, the cook. I mean, it is I know, kind of the fall guy for this, right? <laughs> right, it sounds like the dog ate my homework. Um, exactly. <laughs> and there are more common examples that, that seem to involve uh, much more serious reasons of, of censorship. Isn't that right? Didn't Ben Johnson decide to leave a lot of plays out of his first folio and now we don't have them? 
Censorship takes a number of different forms in this period. Uh, Self-censorship, probably the best example I could think of is a guy called Fulke Greville, who wrote a play about Antony and Cleopatra and then belatedly realised that, hang on, if this ever gets performed or read, people are going to associate this with recent political turmoil. He thought it was going to be misconstrued as an allegory of the Essex Rebellion, so he destroyed his own play before it saw the light of day. Ben Jonson was involved in a play, a seditious play, he wrote with Tom Nash, called The Isle of Dogs in the mid-1590s. And we're not entirely certain what this was about, but it was so problematic that the authorities hearing about it threatened to close all the public theatres across London. So Nash fled, Jonson fled. Um, In fact, it was the end of Nash's playwriting career. And Jonson, when he came to publish his own works in 1616, deliberately did not include this play. Well, we were talking about how, and it's obvious now, uh, how these lost plays, the fact that they're lost is no reflection of um, their quality. It's not because they deserve to be lost. But plenty of scholars have made the case that if they were any good, someone would have published them. So what is the basis for their argument? And you imply that they do real harm to your field. So my problem is that it's not an argument so much as an assertion. It's a self-comforting assertion, and it's quite natural, and I think we would all intuitively go there uh, when faced with the catastrophe of five-sixths of the drama of Shakespeare's period being lost, including plays by Shakespeare. The only comforting thing to do, naturally, is to think, oh, well, hopefully it's the best ones that have survived and we don't need to worry so much about the others. But the work I've been doing for the last 10 years has shown that actually that's just not an assumption that we're entitled to make on the basis of the existing evidence. The trouble is uh, that, well, it's a historical problem, really. It's about the way scholars think about drama. And it's the fact that in the 20th century, the dominant mode of literary criticism privileged close reading. And in the absence of a play text where close reading is not possible, lost plays are accorded a lower status or worth by those scholars whose bread and butter, whose daily work consists of doing close reading. Mm. And gradually we're realising that actually there's no basis for quality judgement about these lost plays at all. Uh, We know that significant playwrights like Shakespeare wrote plays that have since become lost, so there isn't really an obvious rhyme or reason for why plays become lost and quality judgments is simply not going to be an adequate explanation. I do want to ask you about your Lost Plays database. And we don't have to spend too much time on it because I don't want to seem like the Folgers slapping itself on the back, but but maybe you can give us just the thumbnail description of uh, why you started it and, and what exactly is in it. So I started the Lost Plays database with my friend and colleague, Professor Roslyn Knutson from the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. And we did this back in 2008, 2009, after a casual conversation at the British Library where I wanted to know something more about lost travel plays because I was writing my PhD at the time uh, and I'd noticed a bunch of lost travel plays that sounded really tantalising. And she happened to have some information, just a few snippets that she knew that weren't of immediate use to her work at that time but were illuminating for me. And she in turn asked me a question about another lost play. I think it was Bell and Dunn, a play about the first thief hanged in England. And I happened to remember a little reference to that play in a poem, which she'd never heard of. And it occurred to us that if a PhD student and a very senior professor could each tell each other something new, then maybe we should formalise that conversation. So we started gathering together all the snippets of information that we could find about lost plays and posting them in a wiki, basically. It's the same software that um, Wikipedia uses, and we want to make that publicly available in the hope that it would encourage others to work on lost plays as well. 
So one of the great challenges we've had working on lost plays is not just those value judgments, but the fact that lost plays are so ephemeral, they typically didn't warrant chapters or books on their own. They were buried in footnotes and weren't even indexed in scholarly books. So if you wanted to know what had been written about lost plays, what we'd learned about it over the centuries, it was really hard to find that information. The Lost Plays database transcribes the historical records or digitizes them to make them available for inspection. It summarizes what's known about these Lost Plays from the existing scholarship. It offers fresh, fresh suggestions or insights about what these plays could have been about as well. And it brings all those things together on the one convenient place to sort of kickstart scholarship on Lost Plays, essentially. Wow, and it's still a wiki. It's still a wiki. Uh, it's now co-edited by myself and Matt Stegel from Bristol and Misha Teramura from Toronto. Um, Rosalind Knutson is now our editor emerita. And we have a team of about three dozen theatre historians around the world who contribute from time to time. Well, stepping back to get a big picture on all of this research then, how radically does the knowledge of lost plays change how you think about Shakespeare and Shakespeare studies? I think studying lost plays is immensely powerful and enabling for scholars because it rids us of the burden of continuing to see Shakespeare's plays in the same way that scholarship has often treated them for the last several centuries, where only certain parts are important or certain contexts are important or this is what the play means. Okay, well, to, to really nail you down, does it make Shakespeare seem more revolutionary for his period or less? Or more skilled or brilliant or groundbreaking or middle of the pack and hackneyed or less? I would argue that it does not detract from Shakespeare's genius. If anything, it augments it because we appreciate to a greater extent not just his artistic success, but his commercial success. He knew what would sell. He knew what would work. So here we see a man who's churning out masterpieces, but in a timely fashion to make money. And we get a greater sense of just how attuned he was to audience tastes and what was going on at the time. So I think it's really quite important to think about that commercial context and understand what Shakespeare was doing from that point of view. Does it make Shakespeare more or less original? What I would suggest is that we see in Shakespeare something called continuous innovation. We don't see a radical break from the past, a radical break from what everyone else was doing. What we see is this constant refinement, knowing what works, what's trendy, and improving, perfecting, steering the conversation in new directions. He is leading the pack, and I think that becomes much more apparent once we recognise the extent to which lost plays inform uh, what was you know, the topics and the themes of the surviving plays from the period. You know, I'm still really blown away by the fact that five-sixths of these, uh, of all the plays are lost to us. I mean, we're only seeing this tiny fraction. And we've done so many podcasts that have looked at the work of female scholars and scholars of color, and, and they've often revealed all these elements of Shakespeare's era that just were invisible to us. You know, examples like uh, female acrobats and... Um, scholars who question the idea that Othello isn't about race. Uh, I, I mean, when you think about the the marginalized people and the marginalized history, that is what is hidden to us in these lost works. It really makes you wonder what biases are at work in scholarship. Absolutely. Uh, and one of the reasons I turn to uh, visual images, those two-dimensional images, uh, is because it is about biases. It's about what do you see initially and why have you been trained to see that first? 
And in Shakespeare's scholarship, that's to do with the influence of those dominant scholars who've come before us. So we, we live still with a legacy from 19th century scholarship, and that ossifies into fact throughout the 20th century, where people repeat those claims without really interrogating them. And so dealing with those kinds of biases and trying to work out why we think about Shakespeare's plays the way we do is an important element of what I'm trying to do in this book as well. Shakespeare and his colleagues were writing for the stage. They were writing, they were producing live events and trying to capture some of that excitement and the energy and that ephemeral moment is something that is going to be very difficult for us four centuries later. And that's why we learn so much about female acrobatics and that changes the way we think about what it meant to go to a playhouse during Shakespeare's lifetime. Same holds true for lost plays as well, trying to recapture that moment, try to reanimate that moment and better understand the theatre of Shakespeare's time is something that's going to be tantalising but within grasp now, I hope. Well, there is, uh, by definition, so much speculation when it comes to this topic, which also makes it tantalizing. Your book's full of what-ifs, and academics just aren't generally that open to speculation. <laughs> Not at all, right? You, in a lot of fields, right. you, you have to really uh, establish that your feet are on firm ground before you make anything that looks like an assertion. And you don't seem too troubled by that. So how do you deal with the conjecture dilemma or challenges from your colleagues? Well, scholars tend to want to have a clear answer. They, their authority rests on being able to answer questions confidently and clearly and be able to explain something that they've been studying for years with a clear response. And they don't like it when there's ambiguity. But I think the, the extent of the loss from Shakespeare's period has to be recognised. And I think it's actually empowering and responsible to do so. There is still room for conjecture, but it has to be responsible conjecture. We have to explain why we're saying what we're saying. And that's establishing a methodology like that is something I was really keen to do in this book. And so what you'll see in the book, as in Lost Plays database entries, is that I always start with the historical evidence. And then I move on to what it might mean. And when I say what it might mean, I'm always open to acknowledging that it could be this or it could be that. Here's the reasons why scholars have thought in either direction or why I've thought in both directions. And ultimately, if there isn't conclusive evidence for a firm uh, answer at the end of the day, I feel compelled to say that. What ifs opens up so much space, though? I mean, don't you love to think there could have been a woman playwright who was better, so much better than Shakespeare, and she's been lost <laughs> forever to history, right? I mean, I, uh, I love to think I would to love to know that. who Anonymous was. <laughs> <laughs> well, where does your mind go with this? You know, what wish-fulfilling recovered play fantasies do you dream about? Yeah, I would love to be able to time travel. I would love to go back four centuries and be an audience member at the Globe or any of those other playhouses at Shakespeare's lifetime and to see all sorts of really quite wacky and probably lowbrow plays being performed, to be honest. Um, I don't think I'd be going to the theatre for the intellectual masterpieces. I'd be going there for the fun and for the laughs. And there were so many of those plays at that point in time. Um, so I'd give anything to go and actually be witness to some of those performances. And do you give yourself license to reimagine Shakespeare? Privately. <laughs> I, I, I have <laughs> no desire podcast. to write a Shakespeare lost play or anything like that. I know it's something I'd like to think about doing sometimes. Um, but yeah, I do enjoy just thinking about those what ifs and trying to imagine plays different ways. This has been so much fun. I've really enjoyed imagining them and also hearing about your, your Indiana Jones sleuthing. It's been a joy. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. David McGinnis is an associate professor in English and Theatre Studies, Culture and Communication at the University of Melbourne in Australia. 
His new book, Shakespeare and Lost Plays, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. He was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. If you want to use the Lost Plays database, you can get to it online by going to lostplays, one word, dot folger, dot edu. That's lostplays, one word, dot folger, dot edu. Our podcast, Praising What is Lost, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find the Lost Plays database and much more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.